This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. This book has been hugely popular in the nonfiction world, and it's not at all hard to understand why. It's the fascinating story of Louis Zamperini, his life, and his near death after his bomber crashed in the Pacific Ocean in May of 1943. Go to audibletrial.com slash japan to claim your copy. Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast. Episode 105, A Relic of Another Age. Before we get into this week's episode, just a quick announcement. You may have, or you hopefully have noticed, that the audio quality is a bit better this episode. After many months of troubleshooting, I finally realized the problem was my old microphone. It was finally on its way out. So with the help of my wonderful supporters on Patreon and PayPal... I've bought a brand new microphone that hopefully should fix all our problems going forward. So, thank you all to everyone who's donated for the show. You've helped fix this problem, hopefully, once and for all. For everyone else, thank you for bearing with me during the torturous process of audio troubleshooting. And if you too would like to help support the History of Japan podcast against future sound or other related issues, check out the podcast webpage for instructions on how to donate to the show. Now, with all that out of the way, this week I want to talk to you about an aspect of the Second World War that gets attention from enthusiasts, but not necessarily from other people. But it is a fascinating story, though it's hard to get too excited because in the end, it's primarily a story of a bunch of young kids paying the ultimate price for the foolishness of their superiors. The root of this story lies in another one we've already told on this podcast, the tale of the Japanese victory at sea over Russia in 1905. As the majority of the Russian navy sank to the bottom of the Pacific, and the remainder fled for all they were worth, the Imperial Japanese Navy celebrated its coming of age. They had defeated another major power for the first time, and earned Japan a spot among the major players on the world stage. The other major world powers at the time... Great Britain, France, Germany, and a rising United States, took notice. You see, one of the unusual features of 19th century warfare was that the majority of major wars, from the Crimean Wars of 1853-56, to to the German and Italian Wars of Unification in the 1860s and 1870s, and so on, were land wars, not naval ones. There had been some naval engagements during the American Civil War between the Confederacy and the forces of the Union, including the first battle in history between ironclad warships, in fact. But these naval battles were pretty small-scale, and at any rate, the Union held a pretty decisive advantage at sea through the entire conflict. This meant that naval theorists were pretty starved for evidence when it came to thinking about the future of naval warfare. Up until 1905, the last big naval conflict they had to draw upon when thinking about the future of naval warfare was from the age of Napoleon. This despite the fact that by the 1890s, industrialization had revolutionized naval warfare. Ironclad warships could be produced in large numbers, 
and the technology for ship-mounted guns was consistently becoming more sophisticated. Then there were new threats, like torpedoes and sea mines, which were relatively cheap, and could potentially sink a million or multi-million dollar warship, not to mention the issue of submarines, which could destroy several without anyone even realizing they were there. All of this begged the question, what would the next big naval war look like? How much had things changed? The answer provided by the Russo-Japanese War seemed to be, not much. In the end, in a single decisive encounter, Japanese battleships had met and destroyed their Russian counterparts. As it were, despite all the changes, nothing had really changed. Except, of course, that this was a misreading of the situation. Everything had changed. While not evident in 1905, serious changes were beginning to undermine old conceptions of what naval war was. You see, the Russo-Japanese War had not really been a very good showcase for the new age of sea power for one simple reason. The Russians were supremely cash-strapped, and what money they did have was going into their army, not a navy. Russia at this point was undergoing a sort of crash modernization project designed to bring it into the 20th century, with the goal of arming it for a showdown with its enemy to the west, Germany. In this endeavor, Russia had the good fortune to have cheap access to money from their closest ally in the struggle against Germany, France. The French made cheap loans available to Russia to finance Russia's economic and military modernization from the 1890s onward. However, if you look at a map of Europe, it becomes pretty clear that in a fight between Germany and Russia, sea power is not going to count for very much. At this point, the modern countries of Eastern Europe were each provinces, in part or in whole, of one of the three great Central European empires. Germany, Austria-Hungary, allied with Germany, and Russia. Each of these powers had hundreds of miles of shared borders along which to attack each other. All of this meant that French help was geared towards getting the Russian army ready for a land war in Europe along its border with Germany, not a sea war against the Japanese. Which in turn meant that the backslapping and self-congratulation, which undoubtedly filled the halls of naval leadership in Tokyo in 1905, was not entirely warranted. The victory had been impressive, no doubt, but it was not a vindication of the strategies of naval warfare as they existed in 1905. Nor would the First World War prove terribly helpful in that regard. Few large naval battles took place, and most encounters were just small engagements between two ships that happened to run into each other. And so we flash forward to the 1920s, when the naval planners of the world still had no clear idea what the next Great War would look like. On the one hand, battleships seemed to be the kings of the sea. After all, nothing had really been proven to beat one in a straight fight. That, of course, had more to do with the fact that no naval power during the First World War was willing to risk their multi-million dollar battleships in a straight fight than it did with anything else. On the other hand, some young whippersnappers were promoting some newfangled technology as to the future of sea power. Uh, them, what you call it? It's airplanes. You see, the 1920s was the real birth time of naval aviation. Proto-aircraft carriers had existed before the First World War, and one was actually used by the Japanese to attack German holdings in China, but they had serious problems recovering planes after launching them. However, by the 1920s, most of the kinks had been ironed out, and the first true carriers came into service not long after. The power of naval aircraft was demonstrated convincingly for the first time in 1921, 
when an American naval aviator named Billy Mitchell helped organize a demonstration to prove airplanes could sink a ship by doing so with the hull of an obsolete battleship. In Japan, however, the debate about what to do about all this proved nearly irresolvable. On the one hand were traditionalists in the Navy who insisted that the old system of relying on battleships was just fine, thank you very much. This group was spearheaded by none other than our old friend, Admiral Togo Heihachiro, hero of the war with Russia, who was getting up in years but relied on the aura of leadership he'd attained from the war to push his agenda. The other side of this debate coalesced around a brilliant, young, no-nonsense officer named Yamamoto Isoroku. The two sides duked it out in a bureaucratic war over shipbuilding, strategic, and tactical policy, the intensity of which would ensure that if I spent too much time talking about it, absolutely no one would still listen to this podcast. The whole fight was rendered moot, however, because of the civilian government, at least during the 1920s. As we've discussed in previous episodes, in the 1920s, Japan was governed by political parties backed by big business. These people did not want to spend huge amounts of government money on a fleet, especially since doing so would inevitably antagonize the British and the Americans, who were pushing for agreements designed to limit spending on weaponry. The civilian government in Japan signed on to all of these limitation agreements, the Washington Treaty limiting battleship sizes in 1921, the Kellogg-Briand Pact renouncing war in 1928, the London Naval Treaty extending nation-to-nation chip tonnage ratios, beyond battleships in the 1930s, but by 1932 the military more or less had control of the government. There was no coup, per se, but a number of people who spoke out for arms control had an unfortunate habit of being stabbed to death by members of the military, which tended to make them more circumspect. Once the military had control of the government, it announced a plan to abrogate all of the limitation treaties, and by 1935, they were in the clear to start building some warships. But what on earth would they build? Togo had died in 1934, but his views remained influential, and his disciples cried out for a battleship fleet. Yamamoto and his disciples, meanwhile, pushed for the expansion of Japan's carrier fleet. In the end, you could say Yamamoto's faction won out. Some 27 carriers were laid out from 1931 to 1945, Though, to be fair, most of them were smaller carriers, not larger supercarriers. However, tradition dies hard, and not everyone was convinced that giving up on battleships was the great idea. They envisioned not only more battleships, but a new design altogether, one so massive and powerful that it would be nigh unstoppable. Now, all this thinking about a superpowered battleship seemed to account nicely for one of the biggest problems facing the Japanese Navy. Namely, that there was no way in hell they could ever outbuild their chief opponents in the Pacific, the United States, and the British. The American industrial base vastly exceeded the Japanese one by virtually every measurement imaginable, and the Americans could, as a result, simply build a larger fleet than the Japanese would ever be able to sustain. There were ideas floating around Tokyo in the 1930s as to how to fix this problem if it ever came to blows with the U.S., For example, you have Yamamoto Isoroku's Great Gamble, trying to land a decisive blow on the U.S. as soon as war breaks out, or a more traditional approach, trying to wear down the American fleet with attrition before pouncing. This group, however, wanted to beat the United States by crafting a battleship so massively powerful 
it could engage and defeat multiple American ships at the same time. And thus was born the Yamato-class battleship. Three ships were planned. The first, the eponymous IJN Yamato, started construction in 1937 at the Kure Naval Yards in Hiroshima. The other two were the Musashi and the Shinano. Yamato is, of course, an old name for Japan and the name of the province from which the imperial family hailed. Musashi is the traditional provincial name for the area that Tokyo is now located in, and Shinano is the name for the region Takeda Shingen and Uesugi Kenshin used to fight over, though I don't really know why that name was chosen. The battleships would have a massive complement, 2,800 men. The ships themselves would be huge, 862 feet long, displacing 71,600 tons of water at a full load. By comparison, the contemporary American carrier USS Enterprise displaced 25,500 tons of water, a little over a third of that. And in terms of armaments, the crowning glory of the whole thing was its series of nine Type 94 naval guns. These were 45-centimeter guns, a number that refers to the bore or the diameter of the gun barrel, but they were actually listed officially as 40 centimeters, not 45. This was actually done to trick supposed American spies, though to the best of my knowledge the Americans were not spying on the construction of the Yamato. This gun was and remains the largest gun ever mounted on a ship. Once mounted on a turret, each one of these guns weighed about as much as a destroyer. The only concession to naval aviation was the inclusion of fighter catapults, two of them designed to launch a small complement of seven fighters. The ship was laid out in absolute secrecy. Many of the specifications were intentionally mislabeled, and access to the construction site was strictly regulated. Fears of American espionage haunted the construction of the entire ship. As it turned out, the ship was constructed and launched without any American interference. I have no idea if this was intentional or not, but the commissioning of the Yamato took place the week after Pearl Harbor with much fanfare. The Japanese had just landed a string of victories and now were putting a nigh-invincible battleship out to sea. Things were looking pretty good. The Yamato was assigned to Yamamoto Isoroku's command and served as his flagship during the Battle of Midway. However, it was during that battle that, to my mind, the greatest flaw of the whole ship was revealed. You see, here's the thing about building an unstoppable juggernaut of a battleship. What if it turns out to be, in fact, quite stoppable? To put it one way, losing one regular battleship, well problematic, is recoverable. But a ship that big, that expensive, what happens if it gets sunk? Can you bounce back from that kind of loss? To a man, Japanese naval commanders decided we'd rather not find out. While the Yamato was present at several battles, it was always held back from the actual fighting, and spent most of its time docked at port, where the investment would be safe. Which of course raises the question, why even build the damn thing? This problem was eminently foreseeable. The German fleet had been grounded in World War I for much of the same reason. Having spent so much money building it, German planners were unwilling to risk the fleet. However, as far as I know, this was never considered even once during the design or construction of the Yamato. Only once did the Yamato actually engage in combat against the Americans before its final mission, at the Battle of Leyte Gulf in October 1944. Every account I've seen suggests that it performed adequately but not spectacularly, and the Japanese did still lose the battle. 
the Yamato did actually go on the offensive one other time, but it wasn't against the Americans. During the Battle of the Philippine Sea, it accidentally began firing its anti-aircraft guns on retreating Japanese fighters. All of this mounting evidence did finally convince some planners to begin reevaluating the Yamato-class ships. The second ship, Musashi, had already been launched, but the third, Shinano, was reworked into an aircraft carrier starting in 1942. In the end, all three ships came to sad fates. The Shinano's refit as an aircraft carrier was not even complete when it was ordered to sail from Yokosuka, near Tokyo, to the Kure Naval Yards in Hiroshima. En route, it ran into an American submarine, which promptly sank it with four torpedoes. The designers had counted on thick armor and flood control compartments to protect the ship. Even if a torpedo managed to get through the armor, the damaged section could be isolated to prevent further flooding. Unfortunately, the flood control compartments proved too big to work effectively, and the commander of the Shinano believed his ship nigh unsinkable and took too long to start doing damage control work. The Musashi, meanwhile, was swarmed by American aircraft during the Battle of Leyte Gulf in 1944, and sunk after sustaining 30 combined bomb and torpedo hits. But what of the first of them all, the Yamato? Its story, to my mind, is actually the saddest one. You see, by the time of the start of the Battle of Okinawa in April 1945, Japan's surface fleet was in shambles. They'd thrown everything they had at the Allies to try and stop the American advance at the Philippines, and lost most of it in the process. So the naval leadership decided to commit what was left of the fleet to aid the defense of Okinawa during what they called Operation Ten Goal. The goal was to take what was left of the fleet, Yamato, a light cruiser, and eight destroyers, and run them headlong at Allied transports trying to land at Okinawa. The fleet would hit the transports hard and then keep on going and beach itself on Okinawa to act as shore batteries until the ships were destroyed, basically intentionally grounding themselves and then just operating as cannon emplacements. Once the ships were destroyed, the crews were to abandon them and join the Imperial Army forces in ground fighting against the Americans. This is, to be frank, a terrible plan. Not only does it involve using the last of your naval strength, to attack right at the strongest point of the enemy fleet, it's also a tremendous waste of experienced sailors and crucial fuel. Not to mention the fact that no aircraft were assigned to cover the ships, leaving them totally open to, you guessed it, carrier-based aircraft. The commander of the fleet, as well as the Yamato, Ito Seiichi, objected to the plan on exactly these grounds and was overruled by naval leadership, which informed him that the Emperor expected the Navy to do something to help Okinawa, and isn't something better than nothing. The answer is, of course, not really. Sometimes nothing is in fact better than something, especially when something is tremendously stupid and wasteful. Ito, by the way, had objected to the war from the start, believing there was no way in hell the Navy could beat the Americans. He had something of a habit, I suppose, of having sensible opinions that were overruled by his superiors. Of course, in a final, almost comically sad twist to it all, the Japanese operational plans were already known to the Americans, who had cracked the Japanese naval code and knew exactly when the Yamato and company would be on their way and what route they would be taking. On April 7th, the Yamato started its final journey, and American ships and planes were waiting for them. What followed was a slow, grinding journey which saw the Yamato's escorts picked off one by one, 
while the ship itself took shot after shot from American bombers that could hit it more or less with impunity. Yoshida Mitsuru, an officer on the Yamato and one of the few survivors, later wrote an account of its final hours, which I'm going to quote from. Quote, The 6th, 7th, and 8th waves of attack had come one after another, each about 100 planes. A hunch sends shivers up my spine. Is the enemy taking advantage of our loss of speed and trying to damage our rudder? We are covered with wounds. What's more, we are down to half power. Forming beautiful patterns, the torpedo tracks chase after our giant stern. I turn my back to the stern, wringing my sweaty hands, and wait for the impact with senses honed. The torpedoes hit aft. Floating in the air for a moment, the stern is mantled in pillars of flame, pillars of water. From a bit later on in the text, quote, Is this giant ship now on the point of losing her ability to maneuver? Bombs, rocket shells, incendiary bombs pour down on the length and breadth of the ship, innumerable. From the vicinity of the funnel, dense black smoke rises, a fire below decks? That such a thing can happen even to this ship, which boasts of perfect defenses against fire. From our starboard bow, Kasumi, one of the escort ships, steams blindly at us, flying signal flags, have lost steering control. Torpedoes must have gotten its rudder. We struggle and finally manage to dodge the Kasumi. For the first time since the battle began, laughter is heard on the bridge. Are we laughing at ourselves? The battle started around 10 a.m. By 2 p.m. that afternoon, the ship could no longer maneuver. Admiral Ito ordered all hands to abandon ship, but he and the captain, Aruga Kosaku, refused to abandon their post. As the evacuation was taking place, a massive explosion ripped it apart. We don't know what caused it for sure, but the likely culprit was a fire that got into the ship's magazines. In the end, four destroyers managed to get away. Everything else was lost. Somewhere around 4,000 Japanese sailors died. The Americans lost 10 aircraft and 12 pilots. The Yamato was an unmitigated disaster for Japan. It was a tremendous investment of resources and manpower into a ship that was not only strategically out of date, but couldn't be risked in combat because of the fear of its loss. Still, it does have a few positive legacies. The Yamato was unquestionably the most sophisticated battleship afloat in its day, and well after World War II the Japanese couldn't build more battleships, the engineering lessons from building such a massive ship served well for post-war industries as they switched from building massive, expensive battleships to massive, money-making superfreighters. Second, of course, and I would be remiss not to mention this, is Space Battleship Yamato, a truly crazy premise for an anime from 1974. The plot revolves around refitting the wreck of the Yamato with a faster-than-light drive and sending it up into space with a crew of teenagers who go around feeling a lot of sad teenage feelings while fighting aliens, as one is wont to do when one is in an anime. I looked around, but I couldn't find any statements from the creators of the show as to why they picked the Yamato, but if I had to guess, and I'm not the only one in academia who thinks this, it comes out of a bizarre kind of love-hate relationship some in Japan have with the war. The Yamato, after all, is not just a symbol of a bunch of old fogies who couldn't wrap their heads around modern naval warfare, it's also a symbol of a bunch of kids who knew they were probably going on a suicide mission, but went anyway. Though, of course, going was not at all voluntary. Space Battleship Yamato is not the only work out there to valorize this tale. 
Toei, a film studio in Japan, released a live-action movie about the sinking of the Yamato, full of imagery of the hero and honor of its brave crew. Back in 2005, a museum on the site of the former Korei Naval Yards in Hiroshima, dedicated to the Yamato, opened its doors. I've been. It has a very impressive scale replica of the ship, and of course an entire room on the top floor devoted to space battleship Yamato. It's been a few years, I went back in 2006, but from my recollection the museum emphasized two things. The technological marvel of the ship itself, which was very impressive from a design perspective, and the bravery of the people who crewed it. The Yamato, in this sense, represents the ambiguity about war inherent in a nation that has renounced war but still has to defend itself, an attempt to reconcile the bad war of World War II with the good war of righteous self-defense. These are, of course, all valid points, but it's equally important to remember that the Yamato was already out of date before it was even finished, indeed, before it was even designed. From start to finish, it was a waste of resources and men, on the part of a nation that had little enough to spare of either. That's all for this week. Special thanks to Jim Soper for donating to support the show. To join him, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for the life and times of Japan's first and greatest feminist icon, Kato Shizue.